It's not about the fish, okay? It's just right off the bat. Is Jonah, a lot of you guys grew up in church. Some of you haven't grown up in church. You probably still know a little bit about the story of Jonah. And I just want to like right off the gate, it is not about the fish. He is, the fish is not the point. Every time it's like, hey, Jonah comes up in a story and it's like, that fish though, right? Or was it a whale, you know? And then the conversation is like, what is the difference between a fish and a whale? And you're pretty deep on like a Wikipedia, you know, rabbit hole trying to look at the anatomical differences between a fish and a whale before realizing, I don't think it's about the fish. And you're right. It's not about the fish. Um, we're kicking off a brand new series today uh, called Jonah. And it's a, it's a series where we take a look not at a fish because it's so much better than that. It's so much bigger than that. In fact, the story of Jonah isn't even a story about Jonah. The story of Jonah is about God's wholehearted pursuit of us, his half-hearted people. And I, I love this story because there's a lot of themes throughout this thing that you can kind of throw out there, right? There's the themes about how every one of us have at one point or another, in one season or another, found ourselves running away from God. And we want to be reminded that while you can run away from God, you can't outrun God because his grace, his mercy, and his love are found in some of the most unexpected places, including the belly of a fish, right? It's a story about God. It's a story about God's pursuit of each one of us. It's a story about his wholehearted commitment to us, a half-hearted People. And I kind of want to share this, this Jonah series, I guess, with this kind of one statement. Is that when somebody that you love is in danger, you would do anything in the world to save them. When somebody that you love is in danger, you would do anything in the world to save them. Uh, my friend, my pastor friend, realized that this was true several years back. He took his family out uh, to, uh, to one of these like inland lakes, you know, with a little island kind of out there in the distance. And he brings along a couple of kayaks along with him. And it's like, that's, that's the day. It's like a beach day on a lake, a couple of kayaks. What could be better? He's got, uh, he's got his family in tow. His oldest asked, Dad, can I take one of the kayaks out on a trip? Go check out this little island out there and then, uh, and then come on back. And, and his oldest, he knows, he knows the three sacred rules of taking a kayak out, right? He knows, uh, he, he knows you don't get out of the kayak, <laughs> right? That's dangerous and, and precarious by himself. He knows that you got to stay in line of sight of mom and dad at all times. And he knows probably the most important rule to never, ever, ever take off your life jacket when you're in the kayak. So his son, he knows the three sacred rules of kayaking. He's like, okay, go ahead, son, take the kayak out, do the little thing, and then come on right back. I'm going to see you the whole time. Okay, so his son is out there. He's doing his little kayak thing. He's kind of going back and forth, having a good time. He can see this is the wobbles start, right? Some of you guys have been kayaking, you kind of know what I'm talking about. The worst thing you can do in that moment is begin to panic, which is exactly what this kid does. He starts to wobble, little water comes in, he absolutely loses it, he tries to bail out of the kayak, right? Breaking the first sacred rule of the kayak, like don't try to get out by yourself. That's when the danger happens, it's way too deep, it's over his head. He tries to get up, more water comes in, the kayak starts to flood. It's one of these like, your feet, your legs are like in the kayak, and if you've, I'm not a kayak person, definitely not after this story, but it's, your legs are buried in this thing. It feels a little bit more like a coffin than a kayak, you know, when it starts to, starts to fill with water. He panics even more, and his dad, he sees him out there, and his kid's like flailing, right, asking for help. He's up and down. Terrifying situation for any parent. And so dad, he sees the other kayak, and he's like, it's going to take me forever 
forever to get out to that island. And so he sees some other people. They were jet skiing, hanging out jet skis parked on the beach. He runs over, not at the kayak, he runs over at the jet skis, jumps on it. Pastor friend of mine, remember, right? Grand Theft Jet Ski tries to explain him, it's my kid. You know, he's he's tearing across the lake full throttle after his son, grabs his hand, scoops him up. He's, He's a kid, you know, so he's a skinny Dutch kid. So he's like 80 pounds soaking wet. Scoops him up, puts him on the back. Puts him on the back of the jet ski. He sees kind of this kayak it started to get filled with water. And it kind of, it's going down now. And he can't lift those things full of water up out of it very easily. Not at all. And he starts, and he starts heading for shore. You guys, it's Grand Theft Kayak Edition, right? From this pastor friend of mine. Why? And why do we laugh at a story like that? Because it's a simple truth all of us understand. When somebody that you love is in danger... You would do anything, anything to save them. You just got to fill in the gaps as to who it is that you love that's in danger and what the danger is. Right? Because we've, we've gotten to see kids, you know, protecting somebody they love, a little sibling, a little brother, a little sister. Normally, they're just at each other's throats all the time. But if there's a common enemy, if there's a bully on the playground, it doesn't matter if that bully is two, three times the size of that little kid. When somebody you love is in danger, you will stand up to that bully. You will do anything possible to save your little brother or sister. And it's awesome to see. Parents, some of you guys know, you get this, guys. You have gone to some extraordinary measures. Getting up in the middle of the night, working jobs, sometimes working another job to make sure that your kid has a better life than maybe you had growing up, that that they wouldn't experience the same dangers that you had growing up. You would do anything possible when your kid is in danger to save them. Some of you have sacrificed financially in a huge way to help somebody else out. A great sacrifice financially for somebody that you love because they were in danger, you'd do anything you could to save them. That is what this story in Jonah is about. So what we're going to do, uh, we're going to take, uh, take a look at Jonah, and it is, it is a wild story, you guys. Um, spoiler alert, there is a fish involved in the story, and I want to kind of get that out in front of us, and we'll get to that. We're not even getting into it today. We'll get to that another time, but uh, but I would love if you want to follow along, if you've got a phone with you, you have the Bible right there in your pocket, you can go ahead and follow along. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1 today. This is one of those books in the Bible, and there's no shame for you guys to admit. I have no idea, like, where it is. It's Old Testament, and it's like, it's just a few, it's four chapters long, so it's very difficult to find. So you're kind of looking through, table of contents is your friend. Uh, you know, you get to Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. You get to like the Star Wars sounding name, Obi-Wan, Micah, Nahum, Jar Jar. It's right in there. Like that's the area that we're hanging out in today. So Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. The words are going to be on the, uh, on the screen as well. And let's just, uh, let's just kick it off here. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 says that the word of the Lord, right? That's who this story is about. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. This could be a bummer. Someone give me a thumbs up if it goes up on the screen. But anyway, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Go to the great city of Nineveh. The word of the Lord came, uh, came to, to 
Jonah. Um, right off the bat, the main character in the story here, as we can see, is the, the, word, of, the word of the Lord. So I made some jokes earlier about, you know, it's not, it's not about the fish. Just to clarify a couple things, because I, I know the power of the fish part of the story. You're like, okay, but what does he think about the fish? Here's what, here's what I think about the fish, all right? Even though it's not about the fish, okay? Uh, first of all, the story isn't, isn't about the fish. Fish, whale, words, I don't know. The fish isn't the point, you know? Uh, a lot of times we kind of come at a, a passage like this and we're like, can a fish swallow somebody whole? And it's like, I, I'm not really. The biggest miracle in the Bible, is it? Right? Like you, you open up the Bible, like Genesis 1.1, and you start to see like right off the bat, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you're like, isn't that a bigger miracle? Right? You can flip through it a few times. You start to see like the people of God, including Jesus, resurrecting people from the dead. Like that's a bigger miracle than the fish thing, right? I mean, you start to, Christmas was a little while ago. Okay, the immaculate conception of Jesus, God becoming human, right? With flesh and skin on, that's a bigger miracle. I mean, I just want to point out like, let's not get distracted, especially this miracle. This is JV kind of stuff. This isn't even like varsity squad miracle. So yeah. Like, I think it's possible. I think it's cool. Okay, but, the, but the, biggest, the biggest part of it is a story like this, the way that it starts off. We've got names. We've got places. It doesn't start off like, you know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It doesn't start off with once upon a time there was a man named Jonah. It starts off when we've got names and places. It reads like history. So I think we would be wise to read it like history. On top of that, this isn't the only time that Jonah is referenced in the Bible. Uh, in 2 Kings 14, I believe it is, uh, we see a little bit more spelled out about the ministry of Jonah. And, and so we got these like cross-references in 2 Kings for sure. I mean, that's, that's history, and it should be read as history as well. So when we, we look at a story like this, I think it reads like history, but like the nail in the coffin on this whole thing. Um, and why I think this is a story that did, that, that happened, why it's a historical story, with also some deep, profound truths in the middle of it. Jesus references, and we find this in the storytellers of Matthew and in Luke. Those guys record Jesus referencing back to the Jonah story and said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, or whale, I don't know, for three days and three nights, I will be in the belly of the grave for three days and three nights. So Jesus, Jesus links like the history of Jonah to the history of himself being in the grave. So I'm kind of putting all these facts together and going, okay, totally, fish is not the point. However, however, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, if it was good enough for Jesus to believe, like, sure, yeah, I think it's, I think it's good enough for me to believe too. Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, right? So we've got some supporting characters. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And I want to share a little bit about, because Nineveh is also a really important supporting cast on this, uh, on this story that's about to take place. Um, Nineveh is big, bad, and different. Uh, number one, it's, it's not just big, it's huge. It's a massive city. Some of you guys who are kind of maybe a little bit more Bible nerds, and that's okay to admit, you are in churches, good company. You know, Nineveh is the capital city of the empire of Assyria. Assyria would eventually come and destroy, completely annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel. Nineveh is the capital city of that. It's not just big, it's huge. A couple of historians commented about the, the size of the walls 
that are involved around the city of Nineveh. They said it's, it's wide enough, the walls, so that chariots could go one, two, three wide across the walls. I mean, this thing is fortified. This thing is huge. It's big. Number two, it's bad. Uh, sometimes there's a, there's a debate, you know, of whether or not it's better to be loved or feared in leadership. And the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they just decided, you know what, it's feared. Let's just go full throttle on fear. And so some more uh, historians would show us pictures of, kind of hieroglyphic kind of stuff, like, like drawings of the Assyrian Empire and the things that they would do to the enemies. It's just, oh man, it's just brutal kind of stuff. One of the things that they did, and you can look it up, you can see the, the pictures for them, for them, for yourself. They would bury, actually, they would bury their enemies up to their necks in the, in the ground. So just their head was like exposed. And this is, this is a bit graphic, so warning. Um, they would pull out their tongues, stake them into the ground to let them die of thirst. The worst part, for sure, of all of this is while this was happening, they would also force their enemies to listen to Taylor Swift the entire time. <laughs> just through, through. I'm losing friends on Super Bowl weekend. I did not come here to make friends. I, uh... I, in all seriousness, I brought my daughter to go see the Eras movie in the theater, okay? So I'm not just picking on, on T-Swift, which is also what I know, how I know what it's like to be an enemy of Assyria. I suffered through the... No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, that was the last one. That was, go Chiefs. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, it's big. It's bad. And it's, and it's different. It's different, you guys. Um, this city, it's not Israel. It's not God's people, and back then, the prophets were really, really geographically located. And I think that's going to be an important part of how this story unfolds. That when you were God's person, you were called and you were, you were asked to serve a particular people. The northern kingdom in particular of Israel is a split. There's a south and a north. Jonah was the guy for the north. He was supposed to just stay there. And now God comes to him and he just totally interrupts his plans and says, Listen, I want you to go to your sworn enemies. Also, Assyria was like the closest superpower to the northern kingdom. So when... When the Assyrians would kind of open up their pantry and they'd see that the, it was a little, you know, not quite as full as they'd like it to be, they would just head on over to the northern kingdom of Israel and just pillage those cities, just take whatever they could find. And so if you're Jonah and you're living in this, you have stories of the brutality not inflicted just on somebody else by a cave painting somewhere. You have stories of loved ones that were harmed directly from these people. And now God comes to you and says, hey, listen. Unless you do something, danger is going to come upon them. And Jonah's like, bring it. That's fine. They're big, they're bad, and they're different. I am not called to them. Remember that, Lord. It's dangerous ground. Go to the city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But, and this is where it gets interesting. We're two verses in. Verse three, and already Jonah but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, remember that phrase, where he found a ship, interesting, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now there's a, there's a lot of names I'm throwing out. You've got Nineveh over here. You've got Northern Kingdom of Israel. We've got Jaffa. Like where in the world is that? And we've also got Tarshish. And so what I'd like to do, I think it's just kind of helpful in a context like this. Let's check it out, right? 
There's a friendly map over here. And what I wanted to do is just sort of make it easy and grab a map of the entire known world to Jonah, right? He didn't know, you know, North, South America. He didn't know about all that sort of stuff. But, but he did know more or less about this. I don't know Jonah in particular, all of this. But this was the world to Jonah at the time. So let's just kind of check out a little bit, fill in some of these places, okay? Like I mentioned, he's in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's kind of where that little blue, let's make it a little bit bigger, little blue dot right over there. Uh, he says, you know, the word of the Lord came to him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is a little bit of a, little bit of a land trek. It's kind of right over in this area, right over here. We good? We tracking? All right. So it's interesting that he gets on a boat to cross the desert, right? It's like, no, I heard this one. You know, Noah built a boat in the desert. Different story, okay? Different story. Okay, so what he does, he goes down to this little city called Joppa right over here, and he gets on a boat, not to go to Nineveh, remember, because he's fleeing away from the Lord. He goes to Tarshish, which conveniently is right over here. The edge of the world, you guys. If he's a flat earther, he's like, I'd rather fall off than go to Nineveh all the way over here. He's 1,500 miles off course. <laughs> this is not where God wants him to be, right? What in the world? I want to point something out, okay? And, I, and honestly, uh, studying theology and seminary and doing kind of the thing, I, uh, you come across a few things, and it's, it's a theory. So I just want to say, kind of, it's a theory. Uh, and it's kind of like, why, right? Especially because Jonah, Jonah understands. He's, he's working for God. He understands the power and the sovereignty that God has. Why in the world would Jonah, in his right mind, flee 1,500 miles off course when God tells him to do something? Go to, go to Nineveh because his wickedness has, has come up against me. How do you think this is going to end, bro? Like, what, what do you think God is going to do? I, Jonah gets a bye. You know, he's good. He's been in for a long time. You know, he's like 99% in. It's good enough. Just give him this one. No. Theory that I want to kind of pose in front of you. I think Jonah knows that God is sovereign. I think Jonah knows that God is in charge. I think God knows. I think Jonah knows what God does when the wickedness of the nations comes up before him. I think Jonah has a strong, sneaky suspicion that there's a judgment that's going to come down on on Nineveh. And I think Jonah's like, you know what? Bring it. Those Assyrians and Ninevites in particular have been raining down terror on me and my family for long enough. Oh, wickedness has finally made its way up to God in heaven. Good. God, I'm going to go ahead and take the L on this one. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to head 1,500 miles in the wrong direction. You can punish me, but I'm just asking that you punish them too. I don't think Jonah runs away just out of fear of the Ninevites. I think he does it out of hatred for the Ninevites. And maybe Maybe he believes this is the only way to save his country now that God, he can pull the lever and make God pour out his wrath and his judgment on Nineveh. Either way, what we can see is Jonah, and 2 Kings tells us a little bit more about him, even though, even though all of this, what we know about Jonah is he's, a, he's generally a good prophet. In fact, you, you might go so far, you might be like, you know, 99% of the time, 
He's in. 99% of the time, he's on board. I mean, it's just this one time. It's just one thing. I don't know what the compensation package of a prophet in Israel is like. He's probably been through some stuff. He's probably earned a little vacation. Let him take his PTO, go to Tarshish, southern, southern Spain. Are you kidding me? That sounds awesome. Give him a week over there, you know? Maybe he'll come back to work. He'll be refreshed for the prophet work ahead of him. God, he's 99% in. Just give it to him. This is a story where we start to learn something about God and we start to learn something about ourselves too. We're going to go deeper into the hole because I want us to identify with Jonah not as a hero, if anything, as the villain of this story, as the person in the story who needs to be rescued. One of the things that we learn about not just Jonah and all of us, you can be 99% in and you're still far from God. A simple truth exists that if he, has, if he is not Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. Like the truth of the matter is like we can give over 99% of our lives over to him and still fall far short because if he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord of our lives at all. Being Lord of our hearts is not a part-time job. The other thing that I, th- I think is going to hit us, especially today, if, if you kind of consider yourself like a, like a church person, I do, you know, I love, the, I love the church, you know, a very, very spiritual person, very religious person, wh- whatever that means, right? I think a lot of us in this category kind of find ourselves close to God, and this truth also exists. You are never further from God than when you're close to God and you look at him right in the heart and you say, no. I think one of the reasons why God deals so, I'm going to say directly, with Jonah is because Jonah isn't far from God. In fact, he's so close. And he's there, like I said, 99% of the time. And he's so close to the heart of God. And, and it can still be true that you're never farther away from God when you're so close that you can't say, God, it was ignorance. I didn't know what your expectation was. You're so close to God, you can't say, that was my oops, you know? That was my bad. It's going to be different next time. You're never farther from God than when you're so close to him and you know the expectation and you know the relationship and you even to an extent value the relationship, but you just look right into the heart of God and you say, no. I see what you're doing. I I see you putting this this, this burden on my heart for a relationship. Uh, Go across the yard. Talk to the neighbor about Jesus, but God, I'm just saying no. God, I know that this this thing isn't God-honoring. I know that you would probably have me cut it off and end it here. But I'm going to just look right into your heart, God, and I'm going to say, no, I choose me this time. I know that you're asking me to make some kind of a practical sacrifice. Maybe it's a time thing. Maybe it's a finance thing. But God, I'm just looking right back at you and I'm saying, not this time. The answer this time is no. I just want us to identify with Jonah and say, man, we get him. We can, we can laugh about him being 1,500 miles off course in exactly the wrong direction. But aren't we all? The other part of the story, if you remember, he goes down to Joppa, the port city, and he finds a ship ready to, to take him to Tarshish. And I don't know, but I, I kind of wonder if Jonah like shows up at, at Joppa, and he's like, where are the boats going? You know, and like, this is going to maybe Cyprus. That's not too far, you know. This is going to Rome. Okay, we're getting there. And he finds one. Jonah, 
It's on sale, okay? Tarshish is as far away as you can possibly get. You've got the money, the cash right there in your pocket to cover Jonah, this is perfect. Better than that. Jonah, this is providence. The hand of God is behind this. He never wanted you to go to Nineveh. Anyway, those guys are dirtbags. He wants you to go to Spain. It's so perfect. Get on the boat. God's on your side. And it sounds ridiculous. And it also sounds ridiculous when we say it out loud about ourselves. Because remember in the story, like if you're going to read yourself in it, it's, it's Jonah. We're Jonah. And how many times have I heard, how many times have you heard this statement? I wasn't happy in my marriage. I was miserable in that thing. I, I didn't know what to do. I wanted out. I was just looking for something. And then all of a sudden, someone came along and they were perfect. I, I mean, they gave me all the attention that I wanted. They listened to my bad stories over and over. I mean, I mean they, they knew just exactly what to say and when to say it. I mean, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I want to remind you that just because there's a ship ready to head to Tarshish doesn't mean it was God who prepared it for you. Like, at Encounter, like, we don't talk about it probably as much as we should, but, but there is an evil one. There is an enemy whose sole job it is to make sure that there's a ship always ready to take us 1,500 miles off course to Tarshish. If you find that things are a little maybe too convenient and you think it isn't just a good plan, it's God's plan, I'm telling you, no, no, no. We know, we know what the plan of God is. It's, it's not that difficult. He wants to show it to us. And, and I'm, just, I'm just pointing out that if our eyes are always wandering, there's going to be somebody to meet our stare with a flirtatious attitude. If our hearts are full of greed, there will always be something new and something shiny that's going to demand more of our attention. It might not be God who prepared that ship that's ready to Tarshish. That one might come from the other team. Nevertheless, Jonah, he's in this ship bound for Tarshish. And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Whoa. <laughs> the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Uh, so we got the, the oh, brutal guys. <laughs> Geriatric millennial coming through right here. This is embarrassing. Gen Z's like, give it up, bro. Okay, the Lord has got this great wind on the sea. There it is. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid. And each one cried to his own God. Uh, so remember, uh, prophets and people, uh, the, the gods and the deities that they looked up to was largely geographical based. So if they had, came from a different city, a different region of the world, they would cry out to their own God, probably in their own language. And that's exactly what we see them doing here. They're getting their crystals. They're getting their essential oils. They're getting their handkerchiefs blessed by televangelists. They're getting their, their mushroom juice, whatever it is. Every, they're pulling in all the stops here, guys, and, and they're all doing what they can to force the hand of their own God. And they're throwing this cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. 
But Jonah, now this is so interesting, kind of the language here. It's a little bit of a Bible study, but stick with me. Jonah had gone down below deck. He went down to Joppa, and now he goes down below deck, where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. He, he, I'm sorry, he fell into a deep sleep. And before moving on, I, just, I love the intentionality of the biblical story. And I just, I, I want to kind of foster this love for, for God's word in, in you as well. Um, the intentionality here. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down below deck. He fell down into a deep sleep, right? It's directional. We also see that it's spiritual. And now that he has hit this kind of spiritual rock bottom, something is about to give. The captain went to him and he said, Bro, how can you sleep? The storm is on us. Get up, call on your God, lowercase g. We're all doing it, man. It's your turn too. This is all hands on deck here. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he will take notice so that we will not perish. And we got this interesting, the sailors said to each other, okay, we got this storm raging. Let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity as if it's some kind of accident that's taking place. And they cast lot and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked them to tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. And they just hit him with questions like one after another. Okay, what'd you say you do for work again? You know, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Tell us the whole story, Jonah, because you already told us part of it. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. All caps, it's divine name. It's not just a title, it's a name. It's not just like pastor, it's Dirk. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. Now in a world where each person worships the geographical deity that's limited to just their specific region where they come from. Imagine the statement of somebody like Jonah standing up in the middle of a storm and go, and by the way, this Lord created the sea and the dry land. All of it belongs to him. Their response is appropriate. Terrified, they asked, what have you done? And I love the author includes this. Now, they knew he was running away from the Lord because he already told them so. <laughs> they cast lots. I'm pretty sure I knew how, kind of how the, the casting lots process went. It's like drawing straws. Oh, yeah, no, Jonah. It was definitely Jonah. Like, go get the only guy who's sleeping below deck trying to stay unconscious throughout this whole thing. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked them, what do we do? What should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it'll become calm. I know that it's my fault this great storm has come upon you. What do we got to do to you to make the sea calm down for us? I want to give you guys kind of two, two brutal truths, and you might not love it, and that is okay. It's my job to lovingly and graciously tell you guys the truths that you're prepared to, to go into the week that God has prepared for you. The first, the first loving truth that I want to share with you is that my, my disobedience, our disobedience, my disobedience harms others. My disobedience harms other people. We've got Jonah on this ship, and God's definitely trying to get Jonah's attention successfully. We've also got a whole bunch of other sailors and a sea captain 
whose lives are equally in danger because of Jonah's disobedience. My disobedience impacts other people. There is no such thing as just a personal sin. Somebody once pointed this out to me and said, Dirk, you can choose to jump. You can't choose what breaks when you hit the ground. Used to be a part of a church, and there was a fellow in that church that was just the kind of dude that everybody loved to be around. He showed up, smile on his face, just an awesome dude. Served just about every single weekend. I think he was, I think he was an usher uh, during the time that I was there. I think he served in the past as a deacon. He was in church leadership. I mean, just a solid dude, right? And it was wild when he's on the news. It was embezzlement. He worked for a bank, I believe, and he was, he was siphoning off this entire time over a long, long period. The bank gets wind, calls in the authorities. He goes to prison. And I'm telling you, is it sin? Is embezzlement a sin? Yeah, it's stealing. It's in the top 10 commandments. You can look that up later for sure. But who else pays the price? You can jump, but you can't choose what breaks when you hit the ground. And I'm just kind of here to point out to you, it's hard to be a loving father when you're behind bars. It's difficult to be a present husband when you're locked up. It's hard to be a loyal and faithful friend to people when you can't see them on a day-to-day or even month-to-month basis. My disobedience harms others, but thank God that the opposite of that thing is also true. Thank God that my obedience blesses other people, that your obedience is a blessing that goes way out beyond you. I think about this often as the most compelling thing that I can do for you as a congregation, for you as a church. The the best thing that I can do as a pastor for each of you is not give out a compelling sermon, although I'd love that. The best thing that I can do for you has nothing to do with clear and strategic vision of where God is heading us. The most effective And the best possible gift that I could give to you, my church, is my obedience to God, is my holiness as best as I can offer it. The best gift that you can give to people that you love is your holiness and your obedience to God. It doesn't even matter where you work or who you work for. The best gift that you could give that place is your obedience. They might not see it in the short run, but it'll be proven true in the long run. The best gift you have is your obedience offer it. Then we find out the conclusion of the story. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. I love this pitch of like, of like this entire boat full of guys trying to win a rowing match against God, and they're just losing again and again. And they cried out to the Lord, don't let us die For taking this man's life, you notice that they are now using the divine name of God. He will have his way. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And for a moment, Jonah may have thought, that was enough. I could probably get back into the boat. And then a fish came and swallowed him whole. That wasn't the plan. (laughs) More on that next week. But for right now, a parting thought. Because the storm is coming, you know. 
Maybe it was disobedience. Maybe it was, it was self-inflicted, but, but the storm is coming. And when the storm comes, you guys, the best thing I think that you can do is to find yourself a community of people, is to do life with, and to say, have you been in a storm? What did God do with the storm? The best thing that you can do is, is find community and, and join up next to somebody and go, man, it was a layoff early in my career. I'm out of work. I got a family to provide for it. I've got no idea, no idea what in the world God is going to do. But I'm telling you, it was through that storm that God forcefully divorced my identity from being in the job that I was doing. I would have been chained to that desk. I, I would have found all of my hope, all of my salvation, all of my identity in the work that I did, but God knew there was another way, a better way, and so he like jackknifed this whole thing to make sure that that wouldn't ever happen to me, that I wouldn't give over my whole life and identity to a job and a desk that would be filled within two weeks of my inevitable departure. And a loving and gracious God would by any means necessary save those that he would love. You can join up next to somebody and say, the darkest storm in my life was a called off engagement at the 11th hour. Do you know how much that hurts? Do you know how embarrassing that is in the moment? But it was like a loving and gracious God would do anything to save those in danger. And so God can see how close we were right now, but how on different trajectories we would be if this thing was allowed to go 10, 20, 50 years on into the future, the different places that we would end up in a loving and gracious God wouldn't let that happen. I'm telling you, the storm that you might be experiencing this week or having come out of, the storm in your life is not there to pay you back. The storm is there to bring you back. It's a loving and gracious God who's not sending a storm out of retaliation for your sins, but out of restoration for this right relationship. He cares that much about you. And I know this to the very core of my being. We know this, church, because God spilled all of his wrath, all of his judgment, not on you and me for the sins that we are culpable for. No, but he poured all of the wrath and judgment out on his one and only son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago on the cross. So that storm you see in the dark clouds over the horizon, that's not full of wrath on you. That's full of love. Those are the extents that God would go through, not to pay you back in him, but to bring you back. I shared that story of the kayak earlier and my friend who's now full throttling back to shore to try to explain to the group before the officers showed up why he needed to borrow the jet ski. The kayak was filling with water and by the time they were motoring back, he could see that the, the kayak was now sinking to the bottom of the lake. As far as I know, that it's still there. The kayak has just never been found again. And the, the kid who's riding just, you know, in front of his dad with his hands on the, on the handlebar there. He's going, Dan, what about the jet ski? What about the jet ski? His dad's like, are you kidding me? Or sorry, what about the kayak? What about the kayak? His dad's like, are you kidding me? You are more valuable than a kayak. And he just, he repeated that over and over the whole way back. I am more valuable than a kayak. I am more valuable than a kayak. And I'm going to say, yes, you are church. Yes, you are. And when you are in danger, your loving God would do anything that it takes not to pay you back, 
but to bring you back. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray to that good God together. Jesus, you are a good God. You're not here to trick us. You're not here to fool us. You're not here to play games with us. God, there's storms in our life, and we don't know why it happens sometimes. God, sometimes it's going to take years to figure it out, decades to figure it out, just what you are doing behind it all. Sometimes we never find out about what that thing is and how frustrating that is. But we know your character, Lord. We know that you're powerful. We know that you're good. And Jesus, we know that you care so deeply for each one of us that you would give your life on a rescue mission for ours. You deserve our honor and praise. Father, you are so good and so kind. May we offer you not only our faith this week as a thank you gift, may we offer you our obedience as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.